So we are uh, in November going through this grown-up series, uh, talking about how to grow up spiritually, how to, uh, how to grow our spiritual muscles. Did you know that the Christian life actually has an exercise program? Did you know this? It's in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus tells us how to grow up spiritually, how to, how to increase our spiritual muscles. And it's not by uh, bench pressing and running, sit-ups and push-ups. Actually, the exercise program for the Christian life is praying, forgiving, trusting, and obeying. Last week, uh, Pastor Jessica was our uh, personal trainer, and she helped us to explore the exercise of praying. This morning, I'm going to be your Jillian Michaels, your personal trainer, and we're going to talk about another exercise, forgiving. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's Jesus' most extensive teaching, and Jesus frames the entire sermon with uh, an expression of his desire that his children, his followers, be salt and light, that we flavor and light the world, that we live such countercultural lives that people will notice us and, and notice him because of us. And, and by countercultural, Jesus doesn't mean like dress funny and avoid the world. What he means is radically loving God and so radically loving people that people will see your good life, your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. And one of the exercises that Jesus talks about the most in the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, it is the one he, I say he uh, captures best and most, is the exercise of forgiving. Here's all that Jesus said just in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the children of God. A little bit later he says, if you're offering your gift to God at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift to God at the altar. Go, be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come back and worship God. A little bit later in the sermon, he says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak too. A little bit later, he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Anybody can do that. Love your enemies. Be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. And that's only chapter 5 of the sermon. My main text this morning actually is in chapter 6. Didn't even get to that yet. It's really obvious when you read Matthew chapter 5 through 7 on uh, Jesus' words that he really cares deeply about his disciples getting really, 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 really good at the exercise of forgiveness. So the question is, how good are we as individuals, as a church, as a church collectively, at forgiving those who hurt us? You think the world thinks of the church as being really good and gracious when it comes to forgiving others? I was a, uh, I was a young pastor, 
31 years old, went to pastor a church in Pennsylvania. And there was this guy there who had been there for decades. We'll call him Joe, not his real name, about 71 years old. And as soon as I got there, Joe, 71-year-old Joe, made it clear to me he did not like me. Can you believe that? Don't say amen. I've been there maybe two or three weeks, and Joe came into the church office and he handed in his keys. He resigned every ministry leadership position. I didn't even have a chance to make a decision that would offend this guy. He just did not like me from the beginning. I remember the first uh, month or so that I was there, while I was preaching, he would either go like this, couldn't look at me, or more typically, he would leave the church while I was preaching to go tinker in the kitchen. And I remember thinking, I didn't even preach an offensive sermon yet. This is all I love you stuff. I didn't even get into the hard stuff. And so I inquired, why is Joe so angry at me? And I was told that 10 years before I got there, a pastor, a previous pastor, a decade before my time, made a decision to change the worship style overnight. Like they went from organ hymns and southern gospel to electric guitar and rock music overnight. So I was told. And Joe was still struggling with that decision. He was still bitter about it. And because he didn't like that pastor, he didn't like any pastor, including me. (laughs) Especially me. A 31-year-old, wet-behind-the-ears pastor who did not wear a suit and didn't even ever hear of the Gaithers. He didn't like me. And I remember really struggling with Joe. I wish I could tell you that I was a mature pastor and just forgave him in my heart and moved on. But I became unforgiving toward Joe's unforgiveness. That's the cycle in the church. Unforgiveness breeds unforgiveness, breeds unforgiveness. It's like bacteria. How good is the church at forgiving? You know what I think is getting most in the way of the mission of the church to be salt and light? It's not the big things we tend to focus on. Adultery and pornography and addiction, sexuality. I don't think so. I think the thing that gets in the way of the mission of the church the most is a stubborn, grudging refusal among the people of God to forgive those who sin against them. I think it wrecks the church. Almost every church split, almost every church fight, almost every pastor leaving too soon, almost every teenager who grows into a young adult and then abandons the church, the first chance they get, has something to do with unforgiveness in the body of Christ. Where two or three are gathered in the church, there will be unforgiveness in the midst of them. And that should not be. Here's where Jesus goes with this exercise of forgiving. Chapter 6. This passage should come with a warning label, honestly. If you don't, if you don't want to listen to it, you may want to hold your ears now because it's a hard teaching. 
I'm going to jump right into the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, starting with verse 12, jumping right into what Jesus taught us to pray. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I told you it should come with a warning label. This is a scary teaching from Jesus. Let's just be honest. And of everything he said in the Lord's Prayer, the only thing Jesus comments on about the prayer is this stuff about forgiving. The only thing he underscores in the Lord's Prayer is the importance of forgiving those who sin against us. I think what Jesus is suggesting strongly is that the body of Christ, the Christian community, the church, should be better than the general population when it comes to forgiving. That the body of Christ, the the, the church, the called out ones, should be the most gracious, merciful, forgiving, refusal to hold grudges people that exist. The Greek word uh, that Jesus uses for forgive is Atheomi. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. And so the Greek word is atheomy, and it, and it means to leave, to, to leave behind, to let go, to forsake. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 4 when he calls the apostles to leave their boats, to leave their nets, to follow him. What Jesus is saying is, you have to leave the net and the debt to follow him. You've got to leave to cleave. You've got to leave your boat, leave your net. You've got to leave your grudge against somebody if you're going to follow him. The only way to launch into present discipleship is to leave past debts that you have against people behind. There is no other way. It's a hard teaching, though. What Jesus is basically saying here is that the evidence that you've been fully forgiven by God is your willingness to forgive others their sins against you. So if you're a really gifted grudge holder, maybe you haven't fully embraced God's forgiveness of you. And there are two reasons why we don't embrace God's forgiveness fully for us. One is, uh, no need. I don't need God's forgiveness. I'm a pretty good person. I never killed anybody. I'm God's gift to God. (laughs) I doubt any of us in this room would be there, although it's possible. No need. I don't need God's forgiveness. And so you haven't fully received it. Because you think of yourself more highly than you ought to. The second reason, and probably more typical of most of us, is not no need, but no way. No way God can forgive me. I've got way too much shame, way too much guilt, way too much regret. No way God can forgive me for all of my sins. 
And whether it's because there's no need or there's no way, if you can't receive fully the forgiveness of God for you, you will not be able to forgive people who sin against you. Just can't happen. You will hold everyone hostage for their small debts if you can't forgive God's, uh, if you can't let God forgive you of your huge debt. The people who Jesus came down on the most, the people Jesus struggled with the most were not the sloppy sinners who didn't know better. Tax collectors and prostitutes. The people Jesus struggled with the most were the religious people like us who should know better but had a hard time extending grace and mercy to sloppy sinners. I guess what I'm saying is unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. Some would say just a moron. (laughs) A little bit later uh, in Matthew's Gospel still, in chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. Uh, It's prompted by a Uh, a question that Peter asks, actually, but it's all about this forgiveness stuff. And if you thought Matthew 6 was hard, get this. Peter comes to Jesus with a question, a suggestion, really. Peter doesn't ask questions, he suggests. (laughs) He says, Lord, how many times should we forgive the same person when they sin against us the same way? Seven times? (laughs) He's feeling pretty good about that suggestion. Because the popular rabbinical teaching of the day was uh, that you are to forgive the same person of the same offense up to three times. After that, you can cut them off. But you've got to forgive them three times. So Peter's actually raising the forgiveness bar. How about seven times, Lord? Jesus says, nope, not seven. Seventy-seven times. Some translations say 70 times 7, which is 490. You're to forgive the same person of the same sin 490 times. And after you've done that, come and see me and we'll talk about it if you're on 491. And then Jesus tells this parable. A story about a guy who owed someone 10,000 talents. One talent was worth 20 years of wages. So 10,000 talents is like 200,000 years of wages. Let's say a trillion dollars. And this guy owes that debt, a trillion dollars, to this master. And, the, and he goes to the master and he says, there's no way I can pay it and there's no way he could. Don't throw me into prison because they had such a thing as debtor's prison where they threw people in the prison until their family could de- uh, raise the money to get them out and pay the debt. And he said, please forgive my debt. I can't pay it. And that master forgives this guy a $1 trillion debt. That's grace. And then the guy who was just forgiven the trillion dollar debt (laughs) goes and buys someone who owes him 100 denarii, which is one day's wage, 50 bucks. And the guy can't pay him back, and so he has this guy who owes him $50 just after he's been forgiven a trillion dollar debt, throws this guy in prison until he can pay the $50 back. And we read that and we're like, who would do that? We would. Every time those of us who profess to be forgiven 
by God through the blood of Jesus Christ, our trillion dollar debt, and yet hold a $50 debt over the head of someone else, we are just as despicable as the unmerciful servant. Now let me just say there are levels of offense, right? There's, there's, there's high level offenses that some of us are in the process of learning to forgive. Some of us in this room have been abused physically, verbally, sexually. That's hard to forgive. Some of us have watched our loved ones get hurt by someone, and that's hard to forgive. I mean, when somebody messes with those we love, don't we just want to slap them? I mean, you can do anything you want to me, but if you mess with my wife and kids, man, I'm an Italian guy from Philadelphia. I've got Rocky Balboa in me. I will hurt you. Some of you have been abandoned, cheated on, left, slandered, torn down. Those are are high-level offenses, okay? And that's not an overnight forgiveness process. But here's what I'm after today. I would love for us as a church to get really, really good at learning to forgive the small stuff. (laughs) Because if we can't forgive the little stuff, how are we going to forgive the big stuff? Someone took my pew at church. So what? Someone took my parking spot. So what? He never said thank you. Who cares? They never called after my surgery. No big deal. They misspelled my name in the bulletin. So what? I held the door open for him. He walked by. I said hello. He didn't even say anything. And that was three years ago and I'm still mad. So what? Let it go. Don't sweat the small stuff. Here's an example of small stuff. I was a uh, uh, senior in college, pastoring a small church off campus. A lot of college students came. And uh, just before I preached, it was a family weekend. So, so college students brought their family to church. And uh, this college student, Beth, brought her family. And sitting next to Beth, just before I preached, I went over and said hi to Beth and her family. And sitting next to her, I thought it was her mother. And I said, so Beth, this is your mom. Nice to meet you, Mrs. You know, she said, and the lady looked at me and she said, I'm not Beth's mom, I'm her sister. And Beth kind of smiled and said, it's my sister. And I, th- I just didn't register. I had my sermon on my mind. And, and so I just didn't think, I didn't get it. And I thought they were just kind of joking. And I was like, yeah, you do look young enough to be Beth's sister. <laughs> this is why I don't talk to you before I preach. Because then I had to get up and preach and, and they were sitting right in the second pew where Chad's sitting. And Beth's sister, the whole sermon, was glaring at me. She hated me. Four years later, uh, Beth was getting ready to graduate from college, and I took her to coffee and said, so, your sister's still mad at me? She looked at me and she said, she hates you. (laughs) Get over it! If you look old, you look old. I can't help that. I hope she doesn't listen to the sermon. We have a lot of tests uh, for kids, for reading levels, right? So sometimes kids are in fourth grade, but they're at a kindergarten reading level. Sometimes they're in fifth grade, but they're at a ninth grade reading level. So I've been thinking a lot about this week, uh, this week about my, my forgiveness level, you know? I've been in the church for oh, 25 years, maybe a little more. I should at this point be at a doctoral level when it comes to forgiving, 
But how many of us, I wonder, myself included, how many of us are actually at a second grade reading level? How many of us are spiritual toddlers when it comes to forgiving? The most unhappy people in the church are people who just can't seem to forgive others most of the time because they haven't learned to forgive themselves. And if that's you, if, if you have something in your past for which you feel shame and regret, and you know in your head God has forgiven you, but you can't fully receive it and you can't forgive yourself, and now you're holding everybody else hostage uh, who owes you a debt because you can't forgive yourself. If you've asked Jesus to forgive you, then hear the word. In the name of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. Let it go. Let it go. I want to sing the Frozen song. Let it go. Receive the forgiveness of God fully and then pay it forward to those who've hurt you. What is forgiveness? I should have done this earlier, but let me just just put my cards on the table. Here's how I would define forgiveness. And there's a lot of text up there so you can take notes and argue with me later, send me emails, disagree with me, whatever. But, But here's my best take on what forgiveness is and is not. Forgiveness is not forgetting, but remembering and loving that person anyway. When people violate us, we can't forget it. Are you kidding me? but we can remember the offense and love anyway. Instead of doing sort of passive-aggressive kung fu on people with whom we have a grudge, we can remember and love anyway. Forgiveness is not necessarily a feeling, but a commitment to love the person. Like if you don't feel warm fuzzies toward the person who hurt you, that's okay, you don't have to. You don't even have to like them. But you do have to love them or be in a process of learning to love. Forgiveness is not usually instantaneous, but it's a process. Uh, There are some things uh, that we deal with, hurts that are significant, abuse and neglect and betrayal. There's no way we can forgive that stuff overnight. The question is not, have you fully arrived at forgiveness completely, but are you in the process of accessing the grace of God to forgive someone who's hurt you in a big way? That's the question. Forgiveness is not conditional, but might be consequential. What I mean by that is uh, we can't put conditions on forgiveness. You've got to forgive all people of all things they've done against you. So do I. It doesn't mean there's not consequences, though. So, for example... uh, If you're a woman who is being physically abused by your spouse or verbally abused, you can forgive your spouse, but there's still consequences. You've got to get out of there and not go back. That's what I mean. Forgiveness is not easy. It's hard, duh. Uh, Forgiveness does not have limits, but is limitless. It's not three times according to the rabbis. It's not seven times according to Peter. It's 70 times seven. That's what Jesus said. Forgiveness is not possible without God's help, but it's probable when Jesus Christ reigns in our hearts. If the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in us, if the spirit of the merciful, gracious, forgiving God is in us, forgiveness will not only be possible, it will be probable. 
You will not be able to rest until you forgive if the Spirit of God is in you. That's the, that's the what question. What is forgiveness? Here's the why. Why forgive? Because you've been forgiven. Colossians 3.13, Paul says, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Have any of you been offended more than you've offended God? Have people disappointed me more than I've disappointed God? Have people sinned against me more than I've sinned against God? No way. And if God who's perfect can forgive us, who are we not to forgive others? Forgiveness is not usually instantaneous. Oh, sorry. Skip. Uh, forgi- uh, why forgive? Because you want friendship with God. The bottom line of everything Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount about forgiving others is this. The level of our capacity to forgive other people who hurt us will directly impact our level of intimacy with God. There's no getting around that. So if you are spiritually dry, if you find yourself in some sort of spiritual slump, if you come to worship and you just don't feel the presence of God and God seems distant to you, maybe it's not because of the song selection or what the preacher's wearing. Maybe it's not because of your idiotic spouse or your reckless kids. Maybe the barrier between you and intimacy with God has something to do with your lack of forgiving people. Why forgive? Because your witness is at stake. You want your kids and grandkids and friends to believe in the power of God to transform lives? Do you want your kids and grandkids in church? The little ones are watching us. You know this, right? And if they see a lack of grace and forgiveness in us, they will run from the church the first chance they get. Our witness is at stake. The little ones are watching us. And the other reason to forgive is because you want to grow up. When we have the hardest time forgiving and yet press through, every bone in our body doesn't want to forgive. Uh, we don't feel like forgiving, but we press through. We access the grace of God to forgive when it's hardest. That's when we grow 12 inches, spiritually speaking. We grow most when forgiveness is toughest to display. I've had the privilege of being with people on their deathbed nearly, 70, 80, 90-year-olds, and some of the most beautiful people I've met, the most vital, mature, 70, 80-year-olds are people who have this beautiful, winsome, gracious, forgiving way about them, and they die well. They get better with age. I'd say like wine, but we're Wesleyans, but they get better with age. And then I meet 70, 80, 90-year-olds who have grudges that are 30, 40, 50, year old, 50 years old. They've never developed the capacity to forgive past a toddler level. And they die ugly. They just die bitter. You want to grow. Why forgive? Because unforgiveness will destroy you. Bitter unforgiveness is like drinking poison expecting the other person to die. Bitter unforgiveness is a cancer that will wither the tree of your life. Forgive. Well, I've given you a bunch of propositions and platitudes. Let me give you a picture of what forgiveness looks like. On October 2nd, 2006, Charles Roberts, 
a milk truck delivery guy, went into an Amish schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, uh, New York, uh, Pennsylvania, and he shot up the schoolhouse, shot 10 schoolgirls, killing five of them. And then he turned the gun on himself, killed himself. Well, that Amish community obviously was devastated with grief. These innocent girls were shot, five killed. They were grieving. They were hurting. And yet the day after they buried their daughters, the next day, many of them went to the burial service of the killer. In fact, of the 75 people people who attended the burial service for the gunmen, half of them were Amish. And those Amish families hugged the gunman's widow, hugged the three kids, the gunman's three kids, and loved on them, even in the midst of their own grief. Over the course of the next few weeks, uh, frequently, the Amish brought to the widow's house, the gunman's widow and kids, food and flowers and love. They actually raised money. They started a fundraising campaign, the Amish did, and raised money to give to the killer's wife and kids. How do you forgive like that? Jonas Baylor, a counselor who was working with those Amish families who were grieving, noted that because the Amish forgive and refuse to hold grudges, their process of healing was so much quicker. And if we can't forgive the small stuff, how in the world are we going to forgive that? So I talked about the what and the why. Let's talk about the how. How do we forgive? Prayerful, empathic grace. Prayerful, empathic grace. The only way we will ever be able to forgive those who hurt us is to pray and ask God for help. Because it's, it's supernatural. Forgiveness is a supernatural gift. It starts at the altar, praying for the flourishing of the person with whom you have issues. Ask God uh, to help you forgive. And then empathy. Let's talk about empathy. I got a picture of the breakfast club up there. Uh, one of the things we do when somebody hurts us in the church is we distance ourselves from that person. And distance demonizes our debtors. So from a distance, people look more demonic and ugly than they really are. And so the way, to, the way to get over the demonization of those who hurt us is to, and to humanize them is to actually get close to them, to be in the proximi- proximity of them and let empathy develop. So this 80s movie that I'm still trying to recover from, The Breakfast Club, has these five very different kids thrown together for detention. You have the criminal, the crazy, the geek, the jock, the princess, and they all have assumptions about each other and they hate each other until they get close to each other. Start to hear stories and empathy develops, and they become friends. Prayerful, empathic, and then grace. Grace means refusing to backbite when you have the opportunity to get even with someone who hurts you. Grace means actually talking good about the person with whom you have issue, talking good about the person. Grace means sending them a, a nice note, a gift card. Grace means telling them their hair looks nice, even if it doesn't. We'll talk about lying in a few weeks. 
prayerful, empathic grace. So let, let, me get, let me get back to Joe. Can I get back to Joe, that old cantankerous dude, the 70-year-old? And by the way, if you're 70, I apologize if there's any sort of correlation. So I was complaining to Amy, my wife, a lot about Joe. I did not shut up about Joe. I didn't talk a lot to a lot of other people, but just, just to my wife. Joe is driving me crazy. He cares more about what I'm wearing than that the fact that there are homeless and hurting people in our community. Joe cares more about music than mission. Uh, I, don't remember, I don't believe Joe even read the Gospels. He's like the, the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son trying to keep younger sons from coming back to the father. He cares more about his Gaither songs than he cares about God. I couldn't stand him. He's a toddler. And it makes me sick, I would say to Amy. And this is the kind of stuff that makes me want to quit church. Him. (laughs) And I started to impose upon every longtime Christian, 70, 80-year-old Christian who liked Southern Gospel, I started to impose my view of Joe upon them. Narrow-minded, legalistic, small-minded, callous Christians. The same thing that Joe was doing about pastors, I was doing about the Joes in my congregation. I was an idiot. You can say amen. Amy listened, God love her, and uh, she said, well, why don't you just take him to lunch? I said, wait, what? <laughs> You've been listening to me? I'm mad at Joe, and now I'm mad at you. She said, just, just, just move to him. Because she recognized that distance demonizes our debtors. So I prayed. I prayed hard. The thought of going to lunch with Joe was as gruesome to me as a colonoscopy or a root canal. But I prayed, prayed, prayed. God, God, help me. So I initiated a lunch with Joe after praying hard and sitting 30 inches from his face I was so close I could see the pain-filled wrinkles all around his eyes and I started to hear his story and empathy developed in me for Joe he told me about his past. He told me about his broken home life. He told me that he comes from a home where he had an abusive alcoholic father that he was the first Christian in his family. I just, I just started to fall in love with Joe. I never would have imagined that was his past. I had made a whole lot of assumptions. It was a great lunch. I'd like to say that the story ended happily ever after. It didn't. Joe eventually left the church that he had been at for decades, citing me as the main reason for his leaving. But I was able to show grace. I didn't talk about Joe again because I actually loved him. I felt compassion for him, not anger, bitterness. I prayed, moved close, felt empathy, showed grace. Even wrote him a letter saying I wish he'd come back. And I meant it. We've talked about the what, the why, the how. It's time for us to talk about the who. Who do you need to forgive? Maybe it's a $50 debt. Maybe it's a $10,000 debt. 
But if you hold on to unforgiveness, it will be like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. It will destroy your relationship with God and your relationship, not only with the person you're mad at, but with everybody else around you. Who has abused you? Who has hurt you? Who has violated you? Who has disappointed you? Who has betrayed you? Who do you need to forgive? As the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness doesn't happen without prayer. Forgiveness starts at the altar. So what I want to do as we close the service, I know we're going a little late here, but I want to invite you to come to the altar and let it go, let it go, let it go. You have a choice. You can leave behind the grudge. You can leave behind the net and the debt to cling to Jesus, or you can hold on to your grudge and miss out on sweet intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. What will it be? It starts at the altar of prayer. So while we're standing and singing this closing song together, if there's someone you need to forgive for their debt, would you come and start at the altar and ask God for the power to forgive them and move close to them? Let's pray. It's a hard word, but a good word. Amen. Hey, just a few reminders. If you're new with us today, don't forget to take this back to the Welcome Center to get yourself a gift. And then two, if you haven't met our pastors yet, we'd like to have a cold soda with you over in that area of the lobby. But now let's receive the benediction. Leave this place knowing that the powerful and merciful God who has forgiven you empowers you to forgive others. You are sent out.